If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 17. That's where our passage is going to be. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible that's, that's on the pew back in front of you. And that'll be on page 823. And we're going to read verses 22 through 27 here in just a second. And again, if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd, we'd be happy for you to take that uh, Bible home with you. And we'll read that in a second. But before we get to the passage, let me just take a second to, to say a word about the next eight weeks, what, what's coming in, in the next eight weeks, both for, for me and, and my family, but also for you as the church. Um, if you don't know, after this Sunday, uh, my family and I, we won't be here again until July the 9th. Um, and the sole purpose of these next eight weeks is rest. It's a chance for me to take time off uh, in order to focus on spiritual nourishment, spiritual refreshment, uh, to focus on my relationship with Jancy and the kids, and then to think about the church and, and what, what lies ahead for us as a body for the next six or seven years. Um, this sabbatical has nothing to do with going somewhere else or finding another church. Several people have mentioned that to me. I better, better not be going to, to find another church. That has nothing, this has nothing to do with that. Um, that's not even close to being on my radar right now. Um, in fact, the reason I'm going on this sabbatical, uh, the reason that you should be encouraged by me taking the sabbatical, is so that I will be recharged and refreshed so that I can come back eager and excited for the next season here with you all, um, whether that's six and a half more years or 16 and a half. Some of you think, please, not 16 and a half. Um, but, but who knows? It, it, is, it is a removal from here to come back recharged and energized and ready and so our family, we're excited for the opportunity. We are thankful for this church and your willingness to grant the sabbatical. Um, I don't take that for granted. Many pastors would, would love to have this afforded to them that, that don't. And so I am thankful for this. Um, so please pray for us. Um, I actually, I wrote a little letter that, that was in the, the weekly email. It's out on the, the tables where, where you exit. It's, it's actually attached to the back of the newsletter. Then there's some separate hard copies. Um, I just kind of lay out my hopes and prayers. So, so get that, read that um, for, for more, inf more information. Um, but, but pray for us that that's what we're going to be doing. But I also just want you to know that you are going to be okay. Uh, the, this church is going to be just fine. Uh, you are in good hands. Will has been called to shepherd the flock here, as has Robert. And both of these men will care for you well. You can trust them. If you trust me, you should trust them. They are trustworthy men. You, and you can rest assured that you will continue to be fed well week after week. Will is going to preach some, but there are also other men from, from within this body, but also some other local pastors who are going to come and preach God's word while I'm gone. In fact, some of you will probably be disappointed when I get back and start being the main preacher again. I, in fact, I, I further, I would not be disappointed if some of you realize that I am more dispensable than maybe you realize. Not totally dispensable, but more dispensable. Um, because the church, again, we, we worship Christ. He is the head of the church. I am an under-shepherd. You have a good shepherd who will continue to care for you in my absence. And so you're going to be fine. Uh, so, so keep coming, keep serving, keep loving one another. I am confident that this body will continue to thrive um, while one family is gone. And as you pray for us, know that we will be praying uh, for you here. However, you're not through with me just yet. We've still got one more sermon to get through. So, Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 27, or 22 through 27, um, I'm going to read those 
um, at, at the outset. So let me, let me read the passage, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll walk through it. So Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, Matthew writes this. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they, those disciples, were greatly distressed. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let me pray for us as we, as we continue. Father, as we read... And study your word, this, this passage, I pray that you would open our, our eyes to behold wondrous things written in your word. I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Give us wisdom and all that we need from your word. Feed us with this, your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as we look at this passage, there's really two seemingly disconnected passages uh, so, so the first passage, verses 22 and 23, and then verses 24 through 27, and, and they're different topics, and, and they seem disconnected, uh, but, but as we step back, as we look through, I think they're, they're more connected than they, than they appear at first. And here's the connection. We'll see in verses 22 and 23 that this prediction where Jesus is predicting his death, his upcoming passion, and, and, and this prediction is his suffering and his death, what's going to happen, is going to completely alter the relationship that his people have to the temple and the way that it functions and the role that it plays in the life of God's people. And so the suffering and the role of the temple are the connection here because the temple tax is the tax that we'll see in the second section. And so the suffering of the son, which is the prediction, verse 22 and 23, is what prepares the way for the freedom of the sons that we'll see in verses 24 through 27. So the suffering of the son is actually what prepares the way for the freedom that, that we, we're going to see in the second passage. Okay, so the first point that we're going to see is verses 22 and 23, another prediction of death. And then the second point where, where we have this, this issue of the taxes, that that point will be titled principles for life because we'll see two principles there that Jesus teaches from his interaction with Peter. But we're going to start there with verses 22 and 23, another prediction of death. So, so at this point, as we're moving through Matthew's gospel, we are, we're reaching the home, home stretch. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And, and in this first section, what, what Jesus is doing is he's continuing to pre prepare his disciples for what's going to take place. And if you remember, if you're with us back in chapter 16, Jesus first predicted his suffering and death there. And he said, this is what's going to happen. We must go to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. If, do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, no way. This is not going to happen. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. And, and much like that, here, Jesus is, is preparing them for what's going to come so that when, when it happens, when he's arrested and crucified, they're, they're not caught off guard. 
And so look at verse 22. They're gathering in Galilee, and Jesus says to them, the Son of Man, that, that's a title he uses for himself, the Son of Man is about to be, three things, delivered into the hands of men, second thing, they will kill him, third thing, and he will be raised on the third day. Those are the three things. This is his prediction. This is his prediction of what is coming. This is what's down the road for him. And so as he's talking to the disciples, he, he's telling them what's going to happen. Now, now, if you were with us back in chapter 16, when Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, he said, the, the Son of Man must, we must go to Jerusalem, I must be delivered, and I must be killed. So he used the word must, and, and I highlighted at that point the, the divine necessity of the events to come. The, the, the wording is, is, it's a divine must. And here, the language isn't identical, so that there's no word must here, but the, the idea is similar. And in fact, the ESV doesn't translate it the best because the ESV, what, what I read from, says the Son of Man is about to. Kind of like, well, it's about to happen. But if you have the King James or the NIV, the King James says the Son of Man shall be. The NIV says the Son of Man is going to be. And so the point of this prediction, let, let's just all take a, take a deep breath. I, I am so distracted, but it's okay. I'm just going to act like I can't hear it. If you have your earplugs, you can put them in now. Um, but the, the, the point is, let's see, it's 1130. Yep, it's right about time. Uh, but the point is, as Jesus is making this prediction, this is the divine necessity. And he's preparing his disciples. This is what's going to happen. It, it must happen. It's destined to happen. It will certainly happen. You must not think, disciples, that, that you're going to prevent this from happening. And so Jesus wants them to know that God's plan for the Son, the obedient Son, is going to lead to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the grave. But what, what happens, what's interesting, is that in every prediction, he predicts the, the resurrection, but, but it's like they don't get there. It's like they hear he's going to die, and they can't get past that. And I think that's fascinating, because, because every time he says he's going to suffer and die, he also says he's going to be raised. But here, he tells them, and, and Matthew says, that they, when they hear that, they're greatly distressed. And, and so they don't, it's almost as though they don't hear the part of rising again. And so Jesus is certain of his death, but he's as certain of his resurrection as he is of his death. And he wants them to know, I'm going to die, but that's not going to be the end of the story. And so as we read this, we must note that Jesus is in no doubt that he's going to die, but he's also in no doubt either that death is not going to be the end. The Father is going to raise him. And so even though the disciples don't get it, we must not forget that. Because his death and his resurrection are both central. They're both essential to the gospel. This is part of what the message of Christianity is built upon. The, the death and resurrection. If there's no resurrection, the death isn't worth much. And if there isn't a death, the resurrection isn't worth much. They are both part of the gospel. That Christ was crucified, buried, and rose again. And as we read this prediction here so many years later, we can read it with greater confidence than these disciples first heard it because we're on the other side of the death and resurrection. And we can know that these things did take place. We have eyewitness accounts. We have testimony of it. And so, friend, you should know, if you haven't yet heard, Christ has died and Christ has been raised. And that's significant for you. 
You ought to know that, friend. If you're here and you're new to Christianity or you don't know much about Christianity, you ought to know that the death and resurrection of a man, Jesus Christ, is the foundation of the Christian faith. His death was necessary. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be crucified. Not because he's going to get on the wrong side of the, the, the Roman soldiers, the Roman rulers, but because it was part of God's eternal plan. The divine plan of the triune God from eternity past that was being worked out on the stage in history there in Galilee. The life and mission of the Son. This, this covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. The plan to save a people for himself. This plan was, was agreed upon in eternity past, but it was actually being worked out on the stage of earth in a small town of Capernaum in Galilee. And this plan to save Sinners like us involve the Son humbling Himself, becoming a man, taking on flesh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this plan was accomplished by Jesus, the obedient Son who does go to Jerusalem and who both dies and is raised again. This is God's plan, and it has happened. And as a result of that, we now proclaim... That forgiveness of sins is in no other name save the name of Jesus Christ. And so you ought to know here this morning, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are separated from him, if you have not put your faith in him, you ought to know that he died and rose again in order that free forgiveness of sins, in order that the promise of eternal life might be proclaimed to you here today, that you might be reconciled to God and made a son through Christ. He went to Jerusalem, and he died, but then he rose three days later. But notice after this prediction, notice there's, there's this unique encounter after, after this prediction in verses 24 through 27. Look at the principles for life, this, this unique encounter. And I say it's unique because this, this, what happens here in this interaction between Peter and Jesus, this is only recorded in Matthew's gospel. No other gospel writer records this. And, and we know Matthew's past, he, he was a tax collector, so maybe that's part of what was, what was special to him about this. He wanted this tax conversation to be had. But, but notice, they come to Capernaum, and look what happens there in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "'Does your teacher not pay the tax?' And so maybe you're thinking that the IRS comes knocking on Peter's door and they want to talk to Peter about his teacher. They want to talk to him about Jesus. They, we have a question for you about your teacher. Now, to be fair, these collectors aren't really like the IRS. Um, although Matthew doesn't specifically record what type of tax this is, it's almost certainly the tax they're referring to here is a tax that's taken from Jews by Jews. Okay, so, so this, this, is a, this is not a, a Roman tax. So, so a lot of times in the Gospels, you, you'll, you'll hear stories about um, tax collectors, and they're the, they're the bad guys, they're the Jews that work for the Romans. Maybe you learned a story about a wee little man, right, Zacchaeus, who climbed up in the sycamore tree to, to see Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, be, uh, come down from there, I'm going to your house today, right? Maybe you've heard the song, I learned it growing up, but this is not that type of tax collector. This is a Jewish tax that was collected from the Jewish people for the maintenance and upkeep of the Jewish temple. And so the two drachma tax, or a half shekel tax, your translation will say one of those two probably, was taken, it's a yearly tax that was taken from the Jews. 
And the, and the sole purpose was to, to, to keep the temple, the, the whole temple complex there in Jerusalem, in, in functioning, up, up keep. And in fact, most commentators, you can write down Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, because most commentators see that as the basis for this practice. Because there in Exodus 30 is where we have, we, we have a, a tax. Every person would give an offering to the Lord for the service of the tent of meeting. And so it was a, a tax that was taken for the upkeep of the temple. And it was an offering to the Lord. So they, they, they showed their love for the Lord by giving this yearly tax. And so, so most commentators say, well, that, that is the, the, the current expression of that initial tax back in Exodus 30 that is still functioning in the time of Jesus. And so these tax collectors, they come and they, they want to talk to Peter about Jesus. But, but notice how they word their question. They, they, they say, does your teacher not pay the tax? Which is different than saying, hey, does your teacher pay the tax? Did you see the wording is different? And, and I think the assumption behind the question is that he does pay the tax. I think they're, they're expecting an affirmative answer. I, I don't think this is a hostile question. Now, we can't know the, the tone or the intention but I don't think it's hostile. I think they're simply, these collectors have come, and they're servants of the temple leaders, so they're not the scribes or Pharisees themselves. They're just like the middlemen. And so I think these men are coming to Peter to just gently remind Peter about the tax that is yet to be paid by Jesus. Because at that time, there were exceptions for priests and rabbis. The priests and rabbis, they didn't have to pay the tax, but Jesus was not officially recognized by the Jews, by, by the temple as such. And so I think the question is simply to say, hey, your, your, your teacher does pay the tax, doesn't he? Because he's gaining popularity, and if, if he doesn't pay the tax, well, then what are his followers going to do? He, he does pay the tax, doesn't he? I think they're expecting an affirmative so that they can be ensured, yes, Jesus is going to pay the tax, all his followers, and these, little, these middlemen aren't going to have to go back and report and say, well, here's the, that one teacher that you guys don't like. He's not paying the tax. Right? I think that they're expecting Peter to say, yes, he pays the tax. And that's what they get. Look at verse 25. Peter says, yes. He answers the question affirmatively, yes. And that conversation is over, and Matthew records immediately when Peter came into the house, notice Jesus spoke to him first. And so Peter answers the question, the conversation with, with these tax collectors, or these, 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 these men collecting the tax, it's over. And as soon as he steps inside, it's probably his house, where they are, it's where, where he lived, probably. So, so now he's stepping inside. Maybe that's why they asked to talk with him, because it's his house. But anyways, he steps in, and a new conversation begins. Now, now maybe Peter's like, okay, I just answered yes for the teacher. I better let him know the answer. Or maybe... Maybe he's like, I'm not going to involve Jesus in this. I just got to find Judas, the, the one in charge of the money, get the tax, and I can just go pay it. So, so we don't know what Peter's thinking. He's back in the house, but before he can do anything, P Jesus spoke to him first. There's Jesus, and Jesus has a question for Peter. It's a teaching moment, and, and Jesus doesn't miss it. So notice what Jesus asked Peter. He says, what do you think, Simon? Which is another name for Peter. What do you think? And here's the question, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? It's a pretty straightforward question, and, and there, there's not a, a bunch of hidden, hidden meaning behind it. Jesus is asking this question in order to establish a principle. He, he, he wants to know, who do the kings of the earth take their taxes from? And, and so this scenario, this, this hypothetical scenario, it's, it's a concise parable, and Jesus says, Here's the situation. You have a king or you have a ruler. You have this person with great authority. 
who collects taxes from those under him, from his citizens, from those who live under his rule. And Jesus asked Peter, from whom does this ruler extract money? From whom does he take the taxes? And Jesus gives Peter two options. Does he take the taxes from option A, his sons, or option B, others? That's the question. Who does the king take taxes from, his sons or others? And it's a simple question about a general situation. And the contrast that Jesus is drawing out is between those of the royal household, the sons, and those of the outside, the others. That's the contrast that Jesus is establishing here. And, and, you know, as I thought about this, I thought about when I was in seminary, I used to be a barista at Starbucks, downtown Louisville, Kentucky, at the Marriott Hotel, a fancy hotel. They had a Starbucks right there. And, And one of the things about working at Starbucks is that I was entitled to some privileges, and so there would be times when, when whether it was Jancy or, or friends from seminary, they, when they would come by, if it wasn't too busy, I was able to, within limit, provide a free drink for my friend. Right? That was their relationship with me enabled a certain privilege. They could get, within reason, a free drink because they knew me. And so it's not just Starbucks, it's all kinds of things, but there's this relational privilege I mean, in fact, just, just last week, I was at a, a little barbecue place in uh, Suffolk called Linwood's. And, and Linwood, that's a guy, he, he was there and his wife, and they've been in that business for over 40 years. And, and when you walk in, I mean, it's, it is like you're, you're stepping back in time, but you walk in this little barbecue place, and when you pay, they have this, this Christmas card of Linwood and his wife and probably five or six little grandkids, right? And they're, they're all smiling. It's one of those, you know, stage pictures that everybody's doing these days. Right, our family did them. But, but, but Linwood and his wife were with their grandkids. And I can almost guarantee that any of those grandkids that walk into Linwood's barbecue restaurant, they don't have to pay, right? Because Linwood loves them, and Linwood wouldn't make his grand... Now, his, his kids would pay, I'm sure. But the grandkids have a privileged position. And so I think that's the point Jesus is making here with, with questions about the taxes, It's the relational privilege that the sons have to the king that they're exempt from the taxes. The others have to pay. And so notice verse 26. Peter understands the question, and Peter answers from others. So he gets the scenario, and he says, well, the king takes taxes from the others. And then Jesus says to him, and this is the key, then the sons are free. That's the point. Okay, the taxes come from the others. Well, you know what that means for the sons? They're free. Peter answers that the king collects taxes from others, which means the king doesn't tax his own family. And Jesus, seeing that Peter understood the situation, concludes with the main point. So so the first life principle here that we see is the sons are free. The sons are free. That's the first principle for life. The sons are free. One commentator explains this way. The logical result of the reasoning that Peter has pursued is that the king's son are in a different relationship to taxes than the population in general. They are free from obligation. Now, the line of questioning that Jesus pursues here is hypothetical. He wants to establish this principle. But the principle that Jesus establishes when he says that the sons are free is, is quite practical. It's not hypothetical. Because remember, the tax that Peter has just had the conversation about was a temple tax. It was a temple being collected among God's people for God's place, for the temple. And so in a sense, it was, it was God's tax. And Jesus wants Peter to recognize that Jesus 
as the son, he doesn't have to pay the tax. He doesn't have to. He's, he's God's son. Why would he have to pay a tax for God's temple? He is the son. And so, Jesus is making that point to Peter that I don't have to pay this tax. And, and so the, the question, who are the sons, the clearest answer is Jesus. Jesus is free. But notice the fascinating thing. I, I, I couldn't believe this, but if you skip down to the end of verse 27, right? So Jesus is clearly the son. But the end of verse 27, with this miraculous provision, what does Jesus tell Peter to do with the, the coin that he finds in the fish? Who does he tell Peter to pay the tax for? He says, he doesn't say, hey, go pay the tax for me. He says, go pay the tax for you and for me. Which means that Peter is included in the freedom of the sons. Right? So, so Peter is included in this exemption. I, th- I think that's the point, and we'll work that out. But Peter, Jesus wants Peter to get the point that for those who follow him, that those at this point, those who are following him who have left everything, they are his family. They have royal privilege and status. They are his disciples, and they are free. They're free because of their relationship to Jesus. They have relational privilege, and it was true of the twelve, and it's true of us now. There's relational privilege because of our relationship to Jesus. And so the principle is the sons are free, but if you don't know what you're free from, it really doesn't mean anything, right? So what does he mean? What, 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 are they, what, are, what are the sons free from? Taxes? Is, this, is Jesus saying we don't, ha- we don't have to pay our taxes? That's not what he's saying. So, so what does he mean? This is where, as I mentioned at the beginning, this relationship between the prediction of suffering and the freedom of the sons comes into play. Because in this context, the specific task is the temple task. Temple tax. And Jesus is referring to the sons are free specifically from the temple tax. And the reason that the sons are free is because Jesus is the son. And if you just step back and think about the temple itself and the very point of the temple, why was there a temple in Jerusalem? It's because God had promised to dwell with his people. That was the whole point of the temple. God had said, I'm, my presence is going to dwell in the temple. And before the temple, it was, it was the tabernacle. And before the tabernacle, it was, it was the, this portable tent of meaning. And before that, it was, it was his presence with the pillar of fire. Right? The entire history of God's people has been characterized by God dwelling among his people. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. He was in their midst in the garden. Right? God's presence with his people. So the temple, the point of it is this is where God uniquely dwells among his people. And so when Jesus comes, does that change God's dwelling? Now, of course it does. Where is God dwelling uniquely when, when Jesus steps on the scene? It's not in the temple the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, templed among us. The presence of God on the earth as Jesus is there is in the person of Christ. And so the temple doesn't play its part anymore. It, it played its part in pointing to the true temple. And so when Jesus comes, it changes the point and purpose of the temple. In fact, Not long after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the temple would be completely destroyed. Thus proving the point that was never primarily about the temple. The point was God dwelling with his people, which is established with the person and work of Christ. And so when Jesus comes, he fulfills the purpose of the temple. He supersedes the temple. 
And him coming was the plan all along. The temple was a type of shadow, which is why when Jesus comes, I mean, how many times did he tell the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'm going to build it again in three days? And they had no idea what he's talking about. But he's talking about himself. He is the temple. In fact, he would say, one greater than the temple has come, and he's talking about himself. And so the question that we should ask is, why should Jesus pay for the symbol when he is the reality to which the symbol points? He, he doesn't have to pay the temple tax. And so very practically speaking, the tax that Peter was asked about, the mere half-shekel tax for the upkeep of the temple, was not something that Peter or any of the followers were obligated to pay. They had left all that they had to follow Jesus. They were free from the temple tax. They were following the true temple. And so they were free. And, and the rest of the New Testament works out. It's not just the temple tax. It's this entire mosaic system from which the followers of Jesus are freed. Jesus has come, as we've seen throughout this gospel, as the fulfillment of all that came before him. He brought the law to its appointed end. All along, it was meant to point to him. He's the fulfillment. He's the one who, who, who brings it to fruition. And so this means for the one who follows Christ, there's freedom from the law and its consequences. But that freedom comes only because Christ died. And so the freedom of the sons is only through union with Christ, a union that consists of sharing in his, in his death and his resurrection life. And so the union with Christ, that's what it means to put faith in Christ. It's to be united with him, and that union with him guarantees a relationship. We are sons because we're in Christ. And because we're sons, all the privileges of sonship are, are ours. And so, guys, you are sons in Christ. Girls, you are daughters in Christ. We are children reconciled to God in Christ. And the sons, those in Christ, are free. That's the point. This means, among other many things, you're not slaves to sin anymore. You're free. It means you're not condemned anymore. You're justified. It means you're not bound to keep every jot and tittle of the law. It means that you're accepted and loved in Christ. You are on account of Christ. You're free. So that's the first principle. You're free. And that affects how you live. You are free. But a second related principle, notice how Jesus continues in verse 27. This is a, a much quicker point. Because he could have stopped after verse 26, couldn't he? He could have simply said, the sons are free. Period. End of story. He could have left it at that. He could have said, told, told Peter, don't worry about it. They're going to kill me anyways. Don't worry about it. But that's not how Jesus leaves it. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there because the freedom of the sons does not lead to this unhindered lawlessness. Rather, the freedom of the sons leads to keeping a new law, a law of Christ, a law of love. So, so Jesus is interested, one commentator says, is interested in something more than theoretical rights. If the sons are free from tax, they're not free from the claims of love, even love of enemies. So look what he says in verse 27. The sons are free, Peter. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. Take that shekel and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so, so, so that's the phrase, not to give offense to them. That's why Jesus does all this. And we're not going to spend time on this, this miraculous catch. I mean, he says, don't, don't take a net, don't catch a bunch of fish and, and search them out until you find the one with the, the coin in its mouth. He says, take one, one hook, catch one fish, and the fish that you pull up, the first one is going to have a shekel in it. And he does this, he, he performs this, this supernatural miracle so as not to give offense to them. 
That, that's why he does what he does. So instead of insisting on his freedom, he tells Peter, go to the sea and do all this, and then take that coin and pay the tax. Take the shekel, go pay for you and for me. Now, now this, like I said, there's the only gospel that records this event. And what's interesting is, even in recording the event, Matthew doesn't actually record the fulfillment of the event. Right? He doesn't say, and Peter did, like, did what he was told and found as, it, as he was, had been promised. He doesn't say that. But at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, the ability of Jesus to ensure that what he said would be accomplished isn't really in question. I mean, he's done unthinkable. Right? His, his authority over nature and, and all sources of evil has been clearly exercised. So, so no, one, no one can read Matthew's Gospel at this point and say, no, Jesus couldn't have done that. Of course he could have. It's strange. I get it. It's strange. But, but he does it, and he provides for the sons through this fish. But the reason, and the, the second principle, is that though the sons are free, the, the free sons are constrained by love. That's what he says, so as not to offend them or cause offense. The sons are free, but the free sons are constrained by love. And this can work itself out in, in numerous ways. The, our Lord's example in this case deserves the attention of all who profess and call themselves Christians, and J.C. Rowell says, there is deep wisdom in those five words, lest we should offend them. There's deep wisdom in those five words, J.C. Rowell says. And I think we see here that Jesus would have his followers be slow to insist on their rights and freedoms. In fact, I think we see here that sometimes, maybe even most times, a refusal to insist on one's rights is the way of Christ the way of love. Now, now I know, again, here, here's how I would apply this. I know that as Americans, we've, we've been given great political rights and freedoms, some of which are clearly under attack here and now. No one can deny that. Our rights are under attack. Some of the fundamental rights of our nation and its citizens are under attack. And I can realize it's, it's really easy to jump to defend our rights as Americans. And I mean, we should recognize that as Americans, we have a great privilege and responsibility to engage in our political processes, to ensure that our leaders are held to certain standards. So, so we ought to invest in and be involved in these processes. But hear me when I say this. Our freedom as Americans does not, cannot ever take precedence over our freedom as Christians. We are earthly citizens, I would say, personal opinion, of the greatest country on earth. I believe that. But my earthly citizenship is not my primary citizenship. It's not. Our citizenship, all of those who have been united to Christ by faith, our citizenship is not fundamentally here. It is there. Our citizenship is in heaven, which means, and here's how it works itself out, that the cause of God's kingdom the cause of Christ in this world, in this earthly kingdom, must take priority over the cause of this earthly kingdom. It's, it's a matter of priority. Jesus pays the temple tax so as not to give offense. This same Jesus will enter Jerusalem and overturn the tables in the temple and will pronounce judgment on the temple. So that's coming, but, but right here, he doesn't do that. He's seeking to serve the temple tax collectors in order that his freedom not to might not be an offense to them. I think his, his concern is, is his mission. He doesn't want people to say that he, he didn't even pay the temple tax because the temple was in, instituted by God. And there's a lot about the temple that Jesus would affirm. 
It's point and purpose, and it's pointing to him. And so he foregoes his rights to pay the tax. Now, again, I realize that's easy when you're Jesus. We, we, can't, we can't go out into to back river here and, and hope to catch a fish that has a check that's going to pay our taxes. Right? Don't do that. You're going to be wasting your time. That's not the point. But the point is, we are able to live lives of submission to earthly authorities for the sake of the kingdom. Not mindless submission, but convictional submission. The freedom not to is also the freedom to. And the freedom to submit in order not to offend. So that the cause of Christ may be advanced. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. And that's the call for those who follow Christ. And so we see the two principles here. Now, again... So much more could be said, and maybe so much more should be said, but we need wisdom, we need discernment, we need to know. Some of you need to hear, you should give your rights, as Americans, the back seat. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear, you need to stand up for for God and His rights in your life, and you should stand up against the government. for So so there's a balance here. It's not one way or the other. There's wisdom and discernment needed, but we follow Christ who has led the way, and our priority is on Him and His kingdom, and our allegiance is to Him, and we live lives of, of submission to Him, and so far as it, it aids His cause, we submit to our authorities. Well, let me pray, and then we will um, sing in response.